no juice. Hey, there we go. Look at that. Lots of juice. Ample juice. <laughs> like living in an orange grove. Tons of juice. All right. So the first question the author of Hebrews is trying to ask and answer, does the cure actually work? Late at night, you uh, see the you know, commercial come on, and they're advertising some kind of pill, take this pill. You never have to work out. You never have to change your diet, but you'll instantly lose half of your body fat. And, and everybody watching that infomercial knows that that pill isn't actually going to work. The cure is not a remedy for what ails me. There is no proof whatsoever that it's actually going to do what it says and claims that it can do. But when the author of Hebrews says that the greatest cure that you ever need, greater than anything else, better than anything that has been purported to you before, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that it works, well, he's going to expend most of the book trying to make that very same argument to you, that what you need most, you can have in him. That's the first question. The second question that the author of Hebrews is trying to both ask and answer throughout the study of this particular book that he writes to these people nearly 2,000 years ago, the question is this. If the pill is so good, if the cure is so pervasive, if Jesus can actually do what he claims that he can do, then how come you're not clinging to the cure? Right? If we were to land on a mysterious planet and all the people were dying of a particular disease and we had to offer them in one instantaneous moment that which would cure them of everything that ails them, but they refused to take the pill, it would be baffling to all of us. And so the author of Hebrews has descended into this congregation and said, why in the world will you not hold fast to the only thing that can actually help you? And in fact, what he's done throughout his letter, even as he tries to convince us that Jesus is the great miracle from heaven that fixes and remedies our sin, is he intersperses throughout the book a number of warning passages. Here's what happens if you don't cling to Christ, if you don't hold fast. And so here in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 6, we find ourselves in the middle of another warning passage. And it's intense. I just need you to know that right out of the gate. And it creates some problems, and you'll see this when we start reading it. We'll start in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands and the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Now, if you went back and read from verses 11 through 14, there at the end of chapter 5, you remember that he has already castigated them for being so immature about biblical things. He says, you should be teachers right now. I shouldn't have to take you back to the beginning and make you students all over again. You should be desiring doctrinal meat. And instead, I feel like I'm still giving you bottles full of milk. And here in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 6, he's enumerated what that milk is. These things, right? Instructions about washings and layings on of hands. And then he goes on to verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. That is, we will leave the elementary things and go on to the higher things. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, 
it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for the sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, if you were paying any attention at all, you can see maybe already you can predict and sense that there are some interesting quandaries that are laid out here. From my own perspective, I think that there are three pretty common arguments that have been made from this passage. There are obviously many, many others, some of them better than others, but there are three that throughout the history of the church, people have come to Hebrews chapter 6 and said, ah, this is what that means. The first option is that this was written to believers, warning them to live right in order not to lose their salvation. This was written to believers, warning them to live right so that they cannot lose their salvation. And I'll tell you here at the very beginning, even though this is a warning passage, and I'm going to do my best to preach it like a warning passage with actual, real, searing consequences, we can throw this one out right away, okay? I have a big, big problem with the idea that we can lose our salvation. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Now, uh, I know my grandfather, who has never owned a computer, is not going to listen to this sermon. And that's okay. Because my grandfather and several of my uncles and that side of the family are uh, almost all Pentecostal. And they love Hebrews chapter 6. Because it is very common within Pentecostalism to argue that you can lose your salvation. It's also very common for them to argue that you can lose it and then get it back. That every time you sin, you lose it, but as long as you repent of your sin, you can get it back. And so I remember as a child going to the little Pentecostal church with my grandfather and my grandmother, and on Wednesday nights we had a prayer meeting, and the entire front row was full of people who had done a lot of sinning on Monday and Tuesday, but on Wednesday they were getting it all back, Right? Well, I don't think that's what's going on in Hebrews chapter 6, and I wish that my grandfather at some point would have read, in an extended and studious way, John chapter 10, starting in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Who's giving them the eternal life? God is, right? Jesus, the great shepherd. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In fact, it's the same theme that we see in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. There is nothing that can remove the beloved from the care of Jesus Christ. It is the Father in heaven, by sovereign decree, 
who has given us to Jesus Christ for his care as the great shepherd. There is nothing, there is no sin so vile, there is no radical autonomy that we can generate that can pull us away from the love of the Father. We are held secure in the hands of Christ. Now here's where my snarky uncle would come in and say this, because we've had this conversation. One of the very first times that I was ever offered to preach anywhere, I go to my Uncle Roy's church, and it's a Sunday night, and it was a hot mess. But the two things he tells me before I get up there is, one, none of this eternal security business. And number two, don't tell anybody what they have to wear. Well, clearly, I don't care what you wear. As long as everything's covered up, it needs to be covered up. Because my druthers is I would preach in shorts if I could get away with it. And it's only, I don't want beanies staring at my legs, so that's why I'm wearing pants on Sunday morning, Right? But of the eternal security, I said, well, what do you do with John chapter 10? And it says, well, nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God, but I know that I can jump out if I want to. Well, can you really? Because in verse 29, it says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. You know who's included in that all? Even you, even you. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You are simply not strong enough. You do not have the will. You do not have the power to override the sovereign hand of God. You don't have it. It's not within you. The only way that you could lose your salvation, and let's define here what we're talking about. At the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been justified. You have been sealed in the Spirit who has been indwelling now in you. You have been adopted by the hand of God. You have been redeemed from the curse of the law. You have been restored and made a new creature in Jesus Christ. When we talk about losing your salvation, we're talking about becoming unjustified, unassuaging the wrath of God, unpleasing to Him in unrighteousness, uh, being unadopted, being unforgiven, being unrestored, being unredeemed. The only way for you to lose your salvation would be to go back to Calvary and take Jesus Christ off the cross. You cannot lose what God in his gracious sovereignty has given to you. Because you never earned it in the first place. He gave it to you. It's by his power that we have been brought near to him. We find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable. Imperishable. Think about that. Uh, I pulled a can of SpaghettiOs out of the cupboard the other day, and I said, I wonder if that's still good, because I don't remember the last time we had SpaghettiOs in the house. And uh, I don't know if I was, like, saving this for the zombie invasion or what, but its expiration date was, like, 2014. Uh, SpaghettiOs are gross anyway, but I'm not eating five-year-old SpaghettiOs. This is a bad deal. They are perishable, even in the can. Stay away. But what we have been given by the power of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power, not yours, but by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God gave it to you. God is securing it. It's with him. There's nothing you can do about it. God knew exactly who you were when he saved you. But the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, covers all of that. 
the sacrifice is so good. Jesus is so much better as a priest, so much better as a sacrifice, so much better as a mediator, so much better in mediating this new covenant that you can know that you are secure. Again, for those secret Pentecostals in the room, I look forward to receiving your emails. <laughs> so that's option number one. Option number one, he's writing to believers about losing your salvation. Option number two, he's writing to believers not that they might lose their salvation, but that they might lose their testimony or their witness, right? So here, here's an option that's very commonplace. You'll see this. And again, there are people smarter and more wise than I who believe this. That he's writing to believers, and when he says that they have fallen away, by which repentance is never possible again, that what he means actually is that they haven't fallen away eternally, but they have fallen away on this side of eternity. That someone has made a profession of faith. They have stood up before the congregation and said, I follow Jesus Christ, I acknowledge that I am lost because of my sin, and that I'm entirely dependent on his grace in order to renew me in relationship with the Father. I repent of my sin and I choose to follow him in fidelity. And maybe that goes on for a few days or weeks or even years. And then at some point they go, you know what, I don't know that I really believe all that anymore. It's a terrible inconvenience. There are an awful lot of contradictions I'm not sure about here, and I'm walking away. And then they choose never to fellowship with the congregation again. They never read their Bibles. They never pray again. And they are never willingly used to do the plan of God ever again, right? That's one of those options that is really popular, and it's especially popular in independent fundamental and dispensational cir uh, circles that what we're talking about is that someone is able to lose their testimony and be inert as a believer the rest of their lives. I don't particularly love this interpretation. Now, there is a particular doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Or uh, maybe we could say here better the preservation of the saints by God and his gracious sovereignty is it really possible to become justified redeemed adopted forgiven restored and then to live like hell the rest of your life in john uh, excuse me first john chapter 2 the way that john describes what happens he says for those who walk away from the faith if they walked away they were never really a part of us in fact, I think the New Testament teaches pretty clearly the preservation of the saints by the power of God. In Philippians 1, chapter 6, I believe that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The New Testament argues that you can't be saved by living a righteous life. However, a righteous life is proof that one is saved. How do we know that someone is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, a believer? Well, in John 15, we found that those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ remain in him to the very end. Even here in Hebrews, go ahead and turn back to Hebrews chapter 3, just a page in my Bible. How do we know? How do we know that we're his? The way that we know that we're his is if we live by faith 
to the very end. Take care, Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, so long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, all right, how do we know, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. How do we know that somebody is a follower of Jesus Christ? We know because of the duration of their faith. Because the seed has been planted in good soil. And neither thorn nor thistle nor bird nor any other pestilence can keep that person from producing good fruit. We know looking back. We know in hindsight. We know from the end looking back toward the beginning whether or not a person was a follower of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you here right now. This is not the morning where I give you the apparatus to question the faith of all the people sitting around you. If you're taking this opportunity to go, man, I wish so-and-so could really hear this, just pump the brakes on that because that's not what this is about. This is a mirror, right, for you to look in. This is not a map for you to hand to somebody else. Pause now with just a little bit of humility and take a moment and see where you fall in the auspices of the application of this passage. We will know that they are ours if they carry through to the end. That's the argument that John, the author of Hebrews, makes. So if it's not talking about believers who can lose their salvation, and it's not talking about believers who just give up halfway through and peter out until the very end, because we know that's not true of believers. We know that's not descriptive of a true believer that a true believer carries on to the very end they persevere they are held by the power of god philippians 1 says then what's our option for interpreting a passage like this one well i put it in your notes and it's kind of a mouthful but nuance is important in passages like this one and so this is how i would phrase this this is my best understanding of what's happening here in this passage that this passage was written to both believers and unbelievers pause, right? What do we mean by unbelievers? Because I don't think there's a lot of people in the room that Barnabas is writing to in Hebrews chapter 6 who wanted nothing to do with Christianity. That's not who I'm talking about. People who were uh, atheistic or agnostic or adherent to a different faith, I don't think those are people in the room. But I think there were people in the room who we would call an unbeliever, but what we really mean is something more like they were an almost Christian, they were maybe intellectually adhering of Christianity. They believed that these things were true about Jesus Christ, but they did not actually believe in Jesus Christ. There were things that they liked about the faith. They may even have assented to some of those things. But when it came to repentance and following him and leaning on him and trusting in him to carry them through to the very end, that's not something they were actually interested in. It is not enough to affirm that things are true about Jesus Christ. That is not what belief actually is. Belief is saying, I am lost without him. Christ, come to me and save my soul. And I will follow you all of my days. 
Now, there are going to be good days and bad days. Some days you'll fail. But the ultimate trajectory of the life of the true believers is that they are following Jesus Christ. They have been declared righteous, and they are being made more righteous day by day. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. But I think we've all known people who find the faith interesting, but not compelling. Right? They find it intriguing on a Sunday morning, but they have not repented of their sin. They have not leaned on Jesus. They have not embraced him as their Messiah. Yes, he might save some, but they haven't personally clung to him. This is my hope. His resurrection is what will help me live again. Christ, help me. I think that when the author is writing here, he's reading to a, excuse me, writing to a mixed group. He's writing to a group that includes believers, those who will carry through to the very end and those who are intrigued. A group whose fate was mixed and whose destiny, at least from a human perspective, had not yet been achieved. Now, God knows all. God knows what's going to happen to you. He knows uh, he knows everything about you. He knows what was going to happen to you before you were ever born. But before the first cell, the first particle of matter in the universe was brought into existence, he knew who you would be, when you would be born, everything you would do, and where you would spend your days in eternity. He knows all of these things. But the author of Hebrews doesn't. And he's writing to a group of people, some of them not knowing where they're going to end up. The author of Hebrews, I think, is writing to his readers for a very specific purpose. They're living on the razor's edge of unbelief. He loves them dearly and pleads with them as spiritual brothers and sisters, all while lamenting their ignorance and their immaturity. Will you carry on to the end? Will you cling to the anchor? Will you find refuge in Jesus Christ? Not for a day, but for all of your days. Will you stay now here in the faith inaugurated by him, or will you lapse back into the familiarity of the law and of Judaism in which you were raised? Will you carry on? And that's the question I think that he's posing to the audience there. He writes to some who will finish their journey of faith in obedience and fidelity, entirely dependent on Christ. And he writes, knowing that others will prove faithless and disobedient, abandoning Christ in order to turn back to Judaism. So, let's ask the question, is it good news or bad news? I don't really understand. I'm a little disturbed here at the beginning of the passage. Should I be really happy with this passage or should I be really bothered? And I would tell you only that it really depends on your perspective. I read a story about how the Allies, uh, in the days following D-Day, when all the Western Allies gathered there in France and started making their push into Europe for the liberation of Europe, and they would finally march their way into Germany and defeat Hitler once and for all. Then in the days following D-Day, the Allies took the expense and the cost of flying planes over Paris that had been occupied for years, and they dumped leaflets all over the city of Paris that said, the Allies are coming for you. The Allies, hundreds of thousands of leaflets dropped all over the city. Now, is that good news or bad news? 
Well, if you're a Parisian, right, who has languished under Nazi rule for years now, the Allies are coming for you is extremely good news. I cling to that news. I have hope in that news. But if I'm a German soldier living in Paris and I've just witnessed maybe the greatest defeat of the war so far and I know that all of our defenses have failed and the Allies are day by day getting mile and mile closer to the city of which I have occupied, this is decidedly bad news. The Allies are coming for you. So what are you going to do? Throw down your arms. Get on your knees and plead for the salvation of the ones who have come. And this is exactly what's happening here in Hebrews chapter 6. Is it good news or bad news? It's decidedly good news for the faithful, and it is terribly dejecting news for those who will not yield in faith and follow Jesus to the end. It's written to believers and to professing believers, maybe disingenuine believers. The former will find this letter comforting, reinforcing the perfect sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save his people. They're going to persevere to the end. They're going to serve Jesus, and they're going to serve one another without wavering. The latter will find this letter disturbing. It's going to shatter their false security. All right. All that's kind of a preface there, and I see already that we have spent a lot of time here. We are not going to be able to finish all of this this week. So we're going to march a little bit further and we're going to come back to it. And what everybody's going to do is they're going to go back and they're going to read Hebrews chapter 6 and show me why I'm wrong. And I'm perfectly okay with that. If you have some great revelation or epiphany this week, explain it to me and we'll get there. But let's march just a little bit further now into actually executing what we find in Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of, and he's going to list several things there. Although our author has already chastised his readers for an inadequate grasp of the word of God, he says he refuses to teach them remedial theology, and that's what he's doing there in uh, verses 1 and 2. He's laying out these six distinct subjects that are remedial theology. Uh, I remember uh, in college I had to take one course in mathematics, right? And I am not a math student. That is just not my gift. And I had gotten through pre-calculus in high school and my first two years of college, no math. And when it came time, they said, you got to take one math course. And I'm like, what is the easiest math course uh, possible? They said, well, we wouldn't exactly call it a remedial course, but it's voter and statistical math. And I said, what does that mean? They said, well, it's going to teach you how to read bars and graphs that you would find, like, in the newspaper. And I said, is it very hard? And they said, we've never had a student fail. I said, that's a class for me right there. <laughs> Sign me up. And I sat in the front row. And uh, we got to the end of the semester, and the professor said, I don't even know if you need to show up for the final. It's going to be all right. Just, just take your grade and go on. This is what the author of Hebrews will not do. There is no remedial math. He's going to go on to the next thing. He says, I would love to go on to maturity, and that's exactly what he does. You remember, he's been talking about Melchizedek. He's been talking about how Jesus is the greatest priest who's ever lived, the greatest prophet, the greatest uh, king, the greatest sacrifice in a temple made not with human hands. And they're having a really hard time understanding what he's saying. But instead of going back and starting all over again, instead he says, I know for a fact that the best thing for you is to just go ahead and expose you to the really hard and difficult things. So he's teaching them how to swim. 
and they're too lazy to dedicate themselves to learning how to float on their back and doggy paddle and pull on the vest. So he takes them out in the rowboat and he grabs them by the scruff in the back of the britches and he just throws them into the deep end. Here is how we will learn to swim. Here is how we will learn good Christology. I'm throwing you into the deep end. And I'm sure some of us feel like that this morning. I have felt like that all week long here studying Hebrews chapter 6. And then he lists these six areas of basic theology. He does so for an interesting reason. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God. Um, some of your translations there may say ablutions, but it's instructions about washing, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment. Here's what all of those things have in common. And I, let me tell you, I'm not staking my entire reputation of faith on this. I wouldn't fight over this, but it is interesting. All six areas of theology that he has listed here at the very beginning, you know what they have in common? Every Jewish person of faith would have been already familiar with all of them, right? They knew what faith in God was like. They had very specific rules about washings and laying on of hands. The Pharisees, if not the Sadducees, believed in the resurrection of the dead. They knew about eternal judgment. These are all things that they were already familiar with in Judaism, and my guess is what the author is saying here in the opening verses is, I don't want to go back to those things. You have those things down. Don't revert back to the only things you know. It's going to be comfortable. It's going to be things that you have already assented to and have embraced into your life. But Christianity is a new thing. New covenant, new sacrifice, new temple, new law in Christ a new guarantee of what eternal life will look like. A washing not with water, but a washing that purifies us from sin and the blood of the Savior. Don't go back to the old things, the old things you know. It is the new things, the new things of Jesus Christ. And in this way, we find that the New Testament is distinctly a book enveloped in and saturated with newness. They have been given newness of life in Jesus Christ. And then he connects verse 3 to verse 1. He's going to lay out the goal here. I don't want to go back. I'm not going back. We're going to go talk about Melchizedek, and that's what happens in chapter 7. Now, here's what happens in verses 4 through 6. Commonly, I think what is thought of as the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament to interpret. And you see that something has changed because he stops using personal pronouns. He stops saying us and we and you and he shifts over to those, almost as if he's talking to an entirely different group altogether. Now, he's been talking to these, he, he's called them beloved all along. The presumption is that he's speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ, these people that have been on this journey with him, but now we're, we're talking about someone else, those, those. For those who have, and they have experienced some incredible spiritual experiences, they have once been enlightened they have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then they have fallen away. Now, there's somebody in the room who's saying, okay, that's a really heavy list of things that have happened. 
Now, now you're telling me, Pastor, that you believe that what we're describing here is a group of people who are not believers, who are professing believers, who are almost Christians, who, like Judas Iscariot, sat under the teaching of Christ for years and then fell away, or Herod the Great, who loved hearing the preaching of the Word of God, but ultimately walked away from faith in the Messiah that was to come. But these seem really genuine to believers. Is that what you're saying? And it is. It is. Now, uh, just for a moment, and, and I'll stop here at an arbitrary point in just a moment. Let's look at each one of these individually. Having once been enlightened, is it possible to have been enlightened and then be enlightened no more? Isn't that a term that should apply exclusively to believers? Well, John chapter 1. Go ahead and turn back to John chapter 1. As we're speaking of these verbal and nominative forms of light, we come here in John chapter 1 to verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, John calls him the true light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Here is enlightenment in the arrival and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that everyone was enlightened then forevermore? Take a look at verse 10. He was in the world, right? This enlightening figure. And the world made through him did not know him. Is it possible to be enlightened at some point? to understand who this Christ is, but to find yourself at some point in your terrestrial existence no longer enlightened? I think it's possible. He says here in the verses that follow back in Hebrews chapter 6 that they have tasted of the heavenly gift, that they have tasted of the goodness of the word of God, that they have tasted of the powers of the age to come. That really sounds like a believer though, doesn't it? But we know even here in the book of Hebrews that that verb to taste, that they have tasted of something, doesn't necessarily apply to something in permanence. When it says that Jesus in chapter 2, I think it's verse 9, has tasted of death, he actually died. But he didn't stay dead. It was temporary. It was pervasive, but it didn't last. Is it possible to taste of all of these incredible things for a time? and for them not to endure. Yes, I think that's possible. I really think that's possible. Do I love those arguments? No, I do not. I really don't. But I think that they're okay. And it's a really hard passage, all right? I think it's possible. Now, um, the second great question is, what does it mean to fall away? This is probably a great time for us to stop here, right? Um, we're going to talk about falling away next week. Who can fall away? What does fall away really mean? If we fall away, can we be restored again? And what kind of confidence can we have in the character and in the passion of God who loves us and holds us secure by his almighty sovereign hand? You may have said, uh, this week has been really unsettling. I don't know that I like this. 
I don't know where we've been, nor where it seems as though we're going. That's okay. This is one of the great things, of course, I was talking to Laura this week, who taught in BSF on this exact same passage. This is one of the great advantages that I have that she doesn't. They get one week, right, 39 minutes to talk about this. I feel relatively confident that I could hold you hostage here in Hebrews chapter 6 for weeks on end. <laughs> and one of the great advantages of being in the pastorate is that we get to come back to this week by week by week. Here's what I would encourage you to do before we get together next week and continue talking about this passage. Number one, read Hebrews 1 through 6. Start there. So you have a firm grasp of what we're talking about. Let me add another chapter to that. Hebrews chapter 11. If you're wondering what it means to follow Jesus to the very end, you will not find a better list in the whole of the Bible than of Hebrews chapter 11. A deeply flawed group of people. A people who, one step forward, nine steps back, were carried through to the very end by the power and grace of God. What does it mean to exercise our faith? To have an actual moving not an atrophied, but an active faith. You'll find it there in Hebrews chapter 11. Those are the things that I would encourage you to do before next week. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, you have given us so much in your word to consider. I pray that we would find it not overwhelming, but that we would really enjoy the opportunity. And more than ever, I pray that you would help us to take a passage like this one and not only to understand what's happening, intellectually speaking, but to respond with our hearts and with our lives. Help us to live obediently and full of faith, full of our confidence in who you are, what you've done, 